0: Hello and welcome to the Sounds Right podcast. I'm the host, Laura, and in today's episode I'm here with Jacinda Vaughan. This is Jacinda's second appearance on the podcast and this time she's answering listeners' questions about teaching phonics in intervention settings. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi Jacinda, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you, thank you so much for having me again
0: yeah so last time we recorded a podcast together i will link to that in the show notes and it was very well received um people loved it and had lots of questions off the back of it so we thought we would do A, Q&A, which we've not done this kind of format before on the podcast but we had listeners
1: send in lots of questions for you so that's what we'll be doing today it's very exciting. I'm I'm keen. I've been doing my research. I've been talking to people and just um really enjoyed that that process, so I'm really looking forward to answering some questions.
0: Brilliant. So, first question for you is if people didn't listen to the last one, can you tell us a little bit about
1: you, who you are and what your background is? Uh sure. So, I um I've worked in many different settings. Uh, in the education system, so really from early years right through to the end of year six. um, I have a background in psychology, so I did a psychology degree and then I went into teaching. I I feel very much that my psychology degree has... um, has been the thing that gave me a lens on education. So when I'm looking at how I teach and how children learn, my psychology background was what I kind of see the education world through. Um, And through that and becoming a teacher in the early years and like that, that foundation year, year one, year two, I... Obviously, I've been teaching children to read for a long time and write for a long time. And I discovered structured synthetic phonics and linguistic phonics, which led me to Sounds Right. And I will never look back. So (laughs) it led me to um, teaching and uh, leading Sounds Right um, implementation in my school. And through that, um, been having this opportunity to be the in-house trainer for Australia, and it's been absolutely wonderful. Great. So
0: we'll go on to the first question um, that was asked by Miriam Fine on Twitter. And she said, I'd love to hear ideas for assessing, documenting progress and more about the difference between keep up versus catch up interventions. Bear with, this is a long question. I think you're going to tackle it in parts. Also, there is often the perception, at least here in the US, that we need something different for intervention versus classroom instruction. Can you address which aspects of teaching sounds right are the same in intervention versus whole group and which aspects are different in terms
1: of pace, activities, scaffolds, etc.? It is, it's a big one, but I thought it was absolutely fantastic because it covers such a wide range of topics that within answering those, those questions, all of them, um, we're actually answering a lot of other people's questions. And as we go through and it kind of pertains to those people's questions, we'll, we'll weave them into all of these wonderful topics. Brilliant. Fire away. <laughs> so um, I think that a good place to start from Miriam's question is the difference between keep up versus catch up and intervention. So to put these types of categories into perspective, I'm going to use the bell curve to help us. So the bell curve describes the distribution of a t- achievement in a population. So if I give us an example of how many repetitions it takes for us to recognize or read a word, that we map the distributions of those scores. Um, at, and it generally turns out in the bell sh- in a bell shape. So there's a hump in the middle and it tails off at both ends. So if you're thinking about that, um, the repetitions for how how many repetitions for the average child to learn a word, it's about 25. So there are children, obviously, that that's going to be much less. um, And then there are children that there's going to be more. And when we're thinking about our children that might have developmental language delays, they may have learning difficulties, processing disorders, whichever the challenges they face, they can um, they can be faced with many, many more repetitions. So having that in mind, when we're thinking about the difference between keep-up intervention and catch-up intervention, if I say keep-up intervention, what that is is that in that bell curve, which is about 68% of everybody in a general population, is that there are some children that are just below that kind of average um, repetitions. So they're working on content that is the same as their cohort. So they just need more practice on the code that they're currently using in class, but they just need more than 25. They might need 30 or 40 repetitions. When I talk about... Catch-up interventions, that's where children are experiencing significant delays and require significantly more repetitions of that content or different content below the class level to kind of get closer and closer to their peers. So keep-up is really um, generally, for the most part, the children just need additional repetition of the same content of the class, but catch-up students, they're actually catching up to their peers, whether it's code knowledge or skills. That's kind of the difference between those two interventions. Miriam, you also said, can you address the aspects of teaching Sounds Right? Um, Is it the same in intervention versus whole group? And which aspects are different in terms of pace, activities and scaffolding? So I'm going to tackle that bit next. Um, So for a whole class, we're using all of the Sounds Right lessons, all of the follow-up lessons, just as you would, you know, it's, it's your general teaching. The scaffolds and the structures, I think we talked about this last time as well. And I know Naomi in her um, podcast, she talks about the scaffolds that you can use to support in a whole class setting. I'll just quickly go through a few. Um, We use continuance, so those are sounds that can be stretched without distortion. We can use the word structure to support. We can use CVC versus a CVCC word in a class for our students. Our gestural language is such an incredibly important um, scaffold. It's very powerful. It's giving children a place to look and to listen when we're teaching. This goes with voice emphasis, so emphasizing that target sound like mat. Our lines, whether we're using lines or taking them away to increase complexity, but lines are really powerful for our students when we're thinking intervention. Um, And leaving either the word or part of the word visible, I always teach with an A4 whiteboard in my hand so that I can very, very quickly either give the student the word if they need the whole word or a sound or a spelling um, and I can say, or look, make yours look like mine. So if they've reversed an S. So it's giving them the piece of the puzzle that they need to problem-solve and independently uh, read or write a word. Uh, The other other couple of strategies that... uh, undervalued, I think, is the strategic placement of students in your classroom. So strategically placing children that you need to very quickly and effectively error correct with. Keep them close to you. Put them somewhere where you can reach them quickly and um, in a timely fashion. Um, and the other one is the order of students. So we don't think about it a lot, but I think that when you're talking about a class with a range of um, needs, the order that you ask students to respond to you is really important. Some children, when we're thinking about those repetitions for learning a word, having um, a number of peers been able to say the sounds, read the word, say the sounds, read the word, say the sounds, read the word, means that that next child that's not so confident in that can effectively and confidently respond. And that I always say success breeds success. So they're more willing to risk take, to give it a go. So that order is really important as well. Yeah, um,
0: I recently went into a school, actually one of our training schools in the UK. And it was the part, it was, actually we went in together actually, didn't we? And, That's right. <laughs> and um, it was great to see, you know, every child that came up to the board to read a word, they were coming away with success. Whether that was through several error corrections, um, either way, no child was coming up to the front and failing and sitting back down. It was always,
1: you know, ending in success. They, they were very happy. Um, I, I really enjoyed that, I guess. Um, to put it in context, I was very, very privileged to be flown to England and to spend some time in London with my um, UK colleagues and um, to see that training school and to watch those children with that teaching with fidelity, using error corrections on the spot really did show that every single child can be successful in every single classroom. It really was an absolute privilege to go into St George's and um, see how they teach. Um, And I think that, yeah, their their students um, were achieving well above so it's like that in that instruction, the way they instruct their children, the culture that they've built around sounds right. The importance of it has meant that they've lifted all of those children so that they're all achieving.
0: Yeah, it was brilliant. It was uh, really nice to see. And I'm hoping they'll come on the
1: podcast. Oh, that would be very, very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so back to our thing. So in whole class, um, we can differentiate our materials So if you're thinking about um, your dictations, some people use closed dictations where they've pre-organized. So organization really is the key when it comes to um, differentiated materials. They use clothes for dictations. Or if you're doing Seek the Sound, you can have buddies that sit with um, a child who might need just a little bit of extra scaffolding. That works really well in a whole class setting. But I think something when you're thinking about materials and organization is the new portal has really opened up... um, a world of resources that have always existed and they've always been built on. So that's really quite incredible. But um, I think that the sustainability of supporting a range of students. So if you're doing a, a lesson nine, which is seek the sound, and your children in year two, and you're doing unit twenty seven a, which is more spellings, it's quite complex. You can have a student when they go away to independently do that that work, be using unit one, which is just four spellings of A. So they really, they're they're still on the same code, but the complexity has just been adapted just a little bit. But your portal um, is a great resource to very quickly access that type of um, scaffolding rather than having to hunt around the school for the book. So that's one thing that I found really important. Um, If we look at intervention and the things that are the same and the things that are different, I look at The thing that is the same is that you're using all of the lessons and not avoiding some lessons because you think your children can't do it. We do build up to lessons, Um, but making sure that you're using all of the lessons and getting a really good mix for a spicy kind of um, combination of lessons uh, keeps, keeps it interesting, doesn't it? And using the follow up lessons and making sure you haven't forgotten. Um, but I think that's the same. That's the same between whole class and intervention. What's different is the dosage of the types of lessons that you might use with your students because of their needs. So you've done your teacher observation, you've done a range of screening Um, activities like using the Sounds Right Diagnostic, um, quizzes, dictations, you've listened to them reading decodable text, you've got a whole heap of information you've collected. What's different is that they may need more sound swapping, so working on phoneme manipulation, blending, segmenting. They may need more lesson one, which is building words at the sound level, really cementing those sound spelling correspondences. So The the lesson's dosage changes, but the lessons themselves don't change. Um, I think what's different might be the way that you group your students. So it could be a unit, a code unit, but it could be focusing on the skills. So some children really need help with blending and segmenting at different phoneme word structure levels. Um, Another difference is the size of the group. Obviously, in a whole class, you've got your whole class. Um could be 20 to 30 children. Um, however, in an intervention setting, we're looking at potentially one to one. In a tier two intervention setting, there's research around one is to four being quite effective, so you can have four children. Um, and I think that what's the same as your responsive scaffolding that we talked about before, so you're teaching, you're still doing the differentiation, but you're doing it at a Um, a closer quarter. So it's really, really highly targeted. Um, You can really zoom in at the point of need. Um, So it's still the same. However, in that smaller group, you really can have very quick fire error corrections. You can really get children successful and um, reading and writing very quickly. So it's amplified because it's in a smaller group. The the other thing that I feel uh, strongly about is that when you think about it, Intervention, you're working with children with the highest needs. So, whether that's they just need a little bit of extra, but a lot of the time they need quite a bit more attention and strong skills on the person that's working with them. Um, they need to be able to error correct, they need to be able to adjust and adapt their teaching. So, um, uh, while Ideally, that would be a Sounds Right trained teacher. We've got lots of classroom support assistants that support in schools, and if they're a valuable resource, I just think it's super important that there is research around it. So the Educational Endowment Foundation, they did um, some guidance around using teaching assistants to run our intervention groups. And I said the most, they're, they're absolutely valuable and they are seeing two to three months of extra progress for that student through working in that way. But the key component to that is is ha- being overseen by an experienced teacher. So they've got those timely kind of conversations happening so they can problem solve when, they, when they've come up against a challenge for, for a student. So they've got those dynamic kind of professional conversations. What they did find is that when it was left as, are more of a um, they guide themselves and they're just coming in and doing reading or, or small sounds right lessons that sometimes it could actually have a negative impact. So I think that if you're going to use classroom support assistance um, it's absolutely fantastic. Just remember that having an oversight from a t- an experienced teacher is going to have the biggest impact for the students with the highest need. That's my main advice when we're, when we're working with that um, with our students.
0: And of course, teaching assistants must be trained in the same program that's being used in the classroom. And actually, we have, especially in the UK, we have lots of courses that are primarily teaching assistants because they're the ones who are doing interventions. They're the the real stars of the show. Some in
1: some schools, so yeah, they are. They're the, they're the feet on the feet on the ground, um, and that front line. Um, support and that can be there when the needs show. And so like, I think the teachers can do their observations and then having that, that relationship with our teaching assistants to be able to give them the opportunity to um, provide those extra repetitions that we were talking about as quickly as possible because it, it decreases the amount of support that's required later on. And our teaching assistants are absolute gold and uh, very valuable resources. So getting them trained, but making sure that they're supported so that they can support your kids um, is the biggest bang for your buck. Before we
0: continue, I just want to tell our listeners about a brand new series of decodable readers that we've been working on called the Reading Together Collection. I'm mentioning it in this episode because they'll be perfect for tutors to use one-to-one or in small groups with students or even to send home. Each book in the Reading Together collection contains text for the adult to read and text for a student to read, meaning that children are exposed to rich vocabulary and narrative whilst practicing the skills and sounds taught in the initial code. We've also included some questions to help with students oral language development and activities at the back of the book. The series covers units one to seven of the initial code and it's about an alien called Sim and his adventures on Earth and his home planet. It's now available to buy in Australia, the UK and the US directly from our website. I'll put the link in the show notes for this episode. So we're going to, I think, come back to the rest of Miriam's question in a minute. But there was another question that fits very nicely here. And that was Nicole on Facebook asked... When delivering Sounds Right interventions in the catch up setting, do you still follow the same mastery document? That is, be able to read and write current code, read connected text, previous code and write code two to three units below. So that's for a little bit of context. If anyone doesn't know, we kind of give advice that you should be studying the current module and doing reading a connected text for two to three units behind that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you are correct. when Even when it's an intervention, because we're still following the scope and sequence, but at a much slower and more methodical um, rate in that catch-up intervention, the mastery document absolutely holds. Um, so you're still following your formative assessment, which means that, for example, if you're working at a unit eight in the initial code, then that that mastery document says, okay, well, then you should be reading connected text like decodable or controlled text, one unit behind where you're, one or more units behind where you're um, currently working. And then those dictations, so those scaffolded guided writing of sentences are two to three units back. So the mastery document holds because the scope and sequence is the same. It's just you're moving it at a slower pace. Excellent. So going back to Miriam's question,
0: <laughs> then her next bit was that she would love to hear ideas for assessing and documenting progress.
1: That's always a hot topic. It's something that's um, a conversation in every meeting that I have and it's, it really is it's a hot topic because it's so important. Um, Sounds Right has always had an incredibly strong focus on formative assessment, so teachers' knowledge of their students is front and foremost in um, knowing when we're moving forward. We collect data as we go through a lesson, so it's knowing I, I would say it's kind of you can tell when you go going through a lesson the number of error corrections that you might need to make. If you're error correcting regularly, it means your students are still in that, that learning pit where they're they're learning to read and recognize and write words at the word level, but if they're responding to you and you're not having to error correct very often, they're starting to get that automaticity, that fluency of reading. That means that that's quite comfortable, um, which is the, the second part that of that is that if you're error correcting a little bit, um, then they probably still need time. It's also how long does it take them to say the sounds and read the word or are they just reading the word? So if they're just reading the word, it shows you that they've got that autom- automaticity and the flow in their recall. So that's kind of like a cross Across your lesson, you're paying attention to those types of things. But if you want written um, recording, that's where your quizzing is coming in, where you are looking at quizzing units that you've previously taught. So obviously you're still reviewing them, but going back and doing just an oral quiz, a really quick snapshot quiz gives you an idea of whether children can recall things that you've taught them in the past um, with accuracy. We have dictations which are taking that into that uh, that sentence level, which requires quite a lot of cognitive load there because we're not just working at a word level, we're putting it into the context of a sentence. And I think we said before is that we're looking at two to three units prior. So you're looking at so many different things when you use a dictation and you're analyzing can they um, spell words accurately within the sentence um, in a dictation or. Have they got their capital letters? Have they got for full stop? So it's you can analyse a dictation for many, many different levels. But at a sounds right level, when we're working at a sentence level, it requires more. So if they've got accuracy there, you know that that's embedded now. Um, we have other assessments. We've got our sounds right diagnostic assessment. That's not really used with a whole class to keep a track of our, our students. It's more in an intervention setting and you're still not using it all the time in an intervention setting. You might do it at the start of the year, the middle of the year and the end of the year, but it's not designed to be um, used that way. We have other tests that you can use, our like Young's Parallel Spelling Test, um, and that one's a really good one because it's non-referenced. It means that you can track a cohort. Again, you're not doing it all the time. It's the start of the year and the end of the year. You're getting data to show growth across a year and It will give you a spelling age, and obviously your spelling age is much deeper than your reading age because it requires recall memory. It's not using a prompt like a word, um, so that's really useful to track. Um, I find the other thing that I, I use quite regularly to do my monitoring and tracking is if you think about your connected text and decodable text, yes, they're a unit behind where you're at, but think about everything that goes into reading Again, like dictations, a very complex skill. So, if they can fluently read the code below where you're teaching, you can see that they're tracking and their progress is continuing to go forward. So, you can track the code that they're reading fluently in a decodable text.
0: Yeah, I I loved um, when I recorded the podcast episode with Anna Comas-Quinn, who's the head of research at Sounds Right. I'd never thought about the fact that, you know, testing writing and dictation is actually a much better test than reading because it's so much harder and, yeah, it, it, um, you know, it requires that recall memory. Um, So, yeah, I think that's a great point.
1: Um, Yeah, so I guess to finish off with that part is that I just wanted to make it really clear. And I know that we did this last time when we were talking, but making it clear that when you've got your whole class, it um, sounds right teaching, you've got your intervention teaching, but they're not mutually exclusive, that you've got all students, and I mean, all students participating in that whole class teaching. And then on top of that, you've got your intervention, remembering they're needing more repetitions of either the content that's happening in the classroom, or their ever creeping towards their cohorts' knowledge. And uh, one thing here is that Robert Merton popularized the, the term the Matthew effect, which comes from the Gospel reading of Matthew thirteen twelve. 12. It ref- refers to cumulative advantage. So the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Um, so Keith Stanovich, he describes in his research that early new or new readers, when they're acquiring the re- the skill of reading, early success in reading breeds continued su- success. So they continue to grow, they feel more successful, so they can continue to be more successful. But children that struggle to read and get that, those first initial skills under their belts, they will continue to struggle and I just think it's important that if our children aren't exposed to the code that their cohort is is being taught, then they'll never catch up to their peers. Um, and i found that like, I've, I've been an intervention teacher for a really long time, but I also teach in those classrooms in my school. So I'll go in and I'll teach a whole class um, lesson and I have my children that I have an intervention in front of me and time after time they surprise you because they're not a blank slate. They, they are quite capable, they come to you with quite a lot. So holding them holding them to high expectations like you do everybody else, they'll always rise to that level. And I've always been surprised, I'm like, oh, okay, that's fantastic, because they're not blank, blank slates, they're able to engage. And through differentiation, they've been really excited to do that. Um, so Yeah, have high expectations for everyone and make sure that they're part of the whole class teaching um, and um, they get that additional practice that they need. Um, And I think this is the
0: final part of Miriam's question. (laughs) So there's often the perception, um, at least here in the US, she says because she's... Uh, from the US, um, that we need something different for intervention versus classroom instruction? This is a great question, I think. And um, we get asked this quite a lot, I see, you know, like on our Facebook page and things like that. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to hearing your answer to this.
1: I I, I completely agree with you. It's something that is... Um... Often discussed is that um, do these children need something different, a different program, a different approach? And the answer is no. In Sounds Rights' case, that is a speech to print approach. So, thinking about phonics and being able to decode words, uh, it's deeply rooted in the evidence base. So. It is the best way that students learn to read and spell, and it's fully backed by a range of disciplines. So in cognitive psychology, in neuroimaging, speech and language research and educational research, is that when students are taught with a phonics approach in those first years of learning how to read, it's more effective. So when we think about the way that sounds right are structured, that they need more of that same approach. And we, we were talking about that bell curve and the rep- number of repetitions. It's not something different. It's actually just more of that same pedagogy, that same approach to phonics and lifting those sounds off the page to decode them and read words Um, If you're interested in that type of thing and digging a bit deeper, you might like to um, listen to podcasts or watch YouTube things from Stanislas Dehaan. Pamela Snow has some incredible podcasts that are really easy to listen to for educators and Mark Seidenberg. Um, there's, we've got our access to our symposium still, and there's a lot of incredible people that spoke on the symposium. So if you're interested, the symposium, um, look for Sounds Right Symposium, and I believe the recordings are still accessible for, uh, for people if they're interested. So there's, there's lots of information. Um, I guess because Sounds Right is based in that, that phonics research that, You can think of intervention as a dosage issue, as we were talking about before, is that they need more of particular things that are within that Sounds Right approach. Um, And highly responsive teaching is required and following the data and just um, knowing our students. I think a last note here is that implementing Sounds Right in my school we, I did that over a number of years and what i've what I've seen is that if you take a whole sp- a whole school approach to sounds right and you have a really strong focus on the fidelity to the lesson so teaching them the way that they've been designed to be taught not missing out any of the steps especially the writing component um, that you've got really robust planning of revision and consolidation component components and um, your intervention is implemented as soon as the teacher identifies that a student is falling behind that the gaps don't appear or they're smaller and it requires way less resources to support a child to become proficient at their cohorts level so I think those are really important things to remember when it comes to implementing sounds right as an intervention. Yeah, that's great.
0: I think something that I would add to that is, you know, if we if we think about um, the simple view of reading, some children have might have much more of an issue with decoding and some, some children might have much more of an issue with oral language. Um, and so, you know... These intervention phonics evidence-based interventions are brilliant for tackling the decoding side, but actually, some children. It's it's really important to identify which of the two um, students are having trouble with, so that you can really target the interventions um, to meet those those needs. Absolutely. Okay, so on to the next question, Alison Perry on Instagram, asks, how can Sounds Right be used or adapted for students with special needs?
1: I love that it was Alison Perry. Um, (laughs) So I'm very blessed to work very closely with Alison. Um, And after she posed this question, she did some of her own digging and um, we worked together to um, interview a lovely lady named Charlotte Wiggum. And she's a speech pathologist and a sounds right practitioner. And she predominantly works with tier three plus students. So students with very extensive needs, and she uses sounds right to work with these students to teach them how to communicate, which I think is just amazing. So Alison found this lady and we, um, we interviewed her and it was just, um, it was an absolute privilege. She had such passion and knowledge. It was really quite incredible. she, She has a whole heap of tools that she uses to support students with extensive needs in that Sounds Right space, and I'll be able to give you a couple of links for for the bottom of the podcast. But I think a couple of the things that really stood out to me, so I've just got two main things. She talked about alternative pencils. Um, and I'd not heard the term before, but didn't realize that I was actually using alternative pencils and some of the adjustments that I've made. And um, she talked about low tech and high tech adjustments. So a low tech adjustment might be using magnetic tile, um, magnetic letters. So what happens with those is children with poor motor skills are able to move them much, much better. Um, I've been very creative with my magnetic letters because not all of them come with two or three letter spellings of, um, a sound. So me and super glue got friendly and my <laughs> magnetic letters have <laughs> multiple letters stuck together so that it's the right, um, The right spelling for the sound Uh, so that's a low-tech version of an adjustment and it's it's quite effective for children with um, poor um, dexterity a more high-tech version might be um, it's kind of medium tech so i um ipad apps so you've got the sounds right app we've got that for students they can use that to build words and to read and write um read and write words but then a very high tech one might be the use of eye gaze systems where a student may be using their eyes to look in a particular uh, quadrant of a screen to be able to communicate which sound they would like to be recorded. So that's quite high tech. Um, and But that's the level that she is using with these extensive needs students, which I think is just wonderful. Um, the other thing that she pointed out, which I thought was very important for all classroom teachers for whether it's Um, at your your run-of-the-mill kids, the kids that uh, are learning sounds right in an effective and average way. Um, But also when you're thinking about those students who need a little bit more in your classroom, she said that the the power of gestures and lines were highly important for students with extensive needs. So taking that into consideration, that shows you the impact that those two very simple things that we can do um, can have for your students in your classroom even if you don't have these extensive students in your classroom. Um, Yeah. So she was absolutely fantastic. And I think another person that you can look at when you're doing research for students with more extensive needs is Anne Sullivan. And um, she has a book called Access to Phonics, Practical Access Strategies to Teach Children with Complex Needs of All Ages. So, that book has a, a really good range of strategies that you might be able to implement within your Sounds Right lessons. She also has some demonstration lessons with students with extensive needs on YouTube. So if you look up Anne Sullivan, um, yeah, so it was it was an interesting um, opportunity to really dig deeper and think harder about those other students that we have in our classrooms. And Alison, she did answer her own question, um, which I thought was lovely. <laughs> yeah and actually Anne Sullivan uh,
0: she did a talk at our symposium Um, she always says that sounds right um, and her her, I think it's called phonics for sen go hand in hand together Um, I love watching her kind of classroom demonstration or her you know lesson demonstrations they're really amazing to see how how you can make all these adaptations um, to fit students needs it's really cool
1: yeah, so that that was really interesting, and I really enjoyed the process. Um, I think the I think there was another element that I've used, and I think is worth mentioning. Um, so when you think about sensory processing and attention um, challenges that children might experience, I think harnessing the power of multisensory learning is um, really important. So. That's what sounds right, I think, does very, very well, is that because it's this dance between the teacher and the student and they're moving things, they're saying the sounds, they're reading the word, they're saying the sounds, they're writing the word, there's this call and response and there's moving, there's a lot of movement in there. Um, I think that harnessing that multi-sensory nature of Sounds Right is very, very supportive with children who have sensory processing and who have those attentional difficulties. Um, Building in brain breaks is useful for attentional difficulties. So they they need things to be short, sharp and shiny. Um, So you do a lesson, you have a little brain break. And whether that brain break is possibly even just switching to another Sounds Right lesson and you know, keeping it, keeping it spicy, keeping it interesting. Um, And I think that the fluency of you teaching the lessons increases the engagement and responsiveness, that pace of the lesson and using those adaptations um, of the lesson. So flipping the page, not just using the front part of the page will keep that engagement high when it's that attention or focus that you're looking for.
0: Okay so the next question is from Makata, I hope I'm saying your name right, on Facebook, um, asked I'd be curious to hear Jacinda talk about how Sounds Right works for English
1: language learners. So Sounds Right has been great for the students that I've had. Now I've come from a school where it doesn't have a high language English as second language learners, but I have had a number of students that do have English as their second language, and it's been very, very useful. So again, I went and phoned some friends um, and had really lovely conversations just to you know see whether the things that I've been doing are the most useful and practical for a wide range of English learners. And I had a chat with Biljana who's one of our new Australian in-house trainers, so she's welcome to the team, and we had a lovely trip together and I spoke to a colleague named Lisa Repon um, who has a great deal of experience in this area and um, thankfully all of the things that I've been doing with my students are, are the things that they add on to um, their, their teaching with children with English as a second language and just before you said the simple view of reading And the two components to that are decoding, so lifting the words off the page. That's one part of the equation. And the other one is language comprehension. So Sounds Right in particular is really targeting that lifting the words off the page, teaching students the logic of our alphabetic code and and how it works, Um, focusing on precise pronunciation and helping them... because. We take for granted that we can pronounce all the sounds in the English language. Students that have come from a, um, a different language background may not have those. So helping them to accurately um, pronounce those sounds or as close as we can get them so that they are mapping those sounds to the words. So what what we did talk about that was exactly the same was that when we're teaching a word, we're situating it in a contextual sentence. And you can do that really quite simply with the, the scripts. We can say... These are all the sounds that you need to build the word great. Say the sounds, let's build great, like I'm having a great day. Um, and then they say the sounds and they build the word great. So we are situating it within a sentence that gives them context and they've got, oh, right, as they're thinking, they understand the meaning. The other thing that you can do is that you use a relevant picture. So you're dual coding. So you've got two forms of information. So the word might be mat sit, run, jump, swim, top, but you're matching it with a picture so it's giving the meaning to what the word is. So it's giving it a little bit more depth and something else for the brain to hook onto, um, developing that vocabulary. So um, yeah, so you're supporting your English as Second Language students to build a library of English words and their pronunciations and um, but not forgetting that there's a whole pa- different part of that equation, like you were saying before, is the language comprehension component, and that's part of a wider um, language program. So sounds right, fits nicely, and being able to lift words off the page, understand the alphabetic code, and it sits within a wider, you know, understanding the syntax of language and the the deeper meanings of words. Yeah, so sounds sounds right. Absolutely, a powerful part of a. English as a second language program however it's just one of those parts of the simple view of reading it needs to be backed up with um, the language comprehension
0: yeah and um, I think possibly even more so that language comprehension part is going to be really important for those children to level the playing field with other students because they might not be getting they might not speak English at home and so they're probably not getting lots of that more complex language hearing that from
1: their parents and things like that so they'll need to get that from school. Yes and they definitely do that on the playground. <laughs> they, have a, they have a lovely time <laughs> um, but yeah definitely in our, our classroom settings and the books that we read um, and, and rich conversations that's where we're, we're getting that understanding of the the meaning of all the words that we try to read. Okay so Sue on Facebook asked in an intervention setting how can you help with the b d confusion so way back in the day when they were deciding the the symbols that represented those sounds the b d p and q they didn't take mirror invariance into um account so what mirror invariance is is the brain's ability to see a face or an object from any angle and still recognize it. So um or a chair. A chair is a chair is a chair is a chair. It's from any angle, it's still a chair. So B, D, P, and Q, they're just rotations and flips of the same shape. So the brain is designed to see something from any angle. And when they chose those letters, uh those letter symbols to represent the sounds, they didn't really know about that. I wish they'd chosen something slightly different. Um <laughs> Um, Children need a great deal of exposure to B's and D's within the context of a word. So the best way to help a child um, settle the directionality of those B's and D's is to really teach them in the context of whole words. So lots of word building and word reading and word writing Another thing that's really helpful is when they're writing, focusing on the letter formation because it's so different for those B's and those D's. Um, when they're doing their letter formation, it's helping secure the directionality of those letters, but definitely always within the context of a word. Um, that That's one of my main things. Also, it's completely developmentally appropriate for children those first couple of years of schooling. So a lot of people see B and T D confusions in that first year particularly as a sign of maybe having a learning difficulty. Um it isn't always a sign of that. It's because that Mirian variance is causing them some challenges. They haven't had enough exposure, enough practice to words with those um those sound those letter formations in them. Um, so it is still developmentally appropriate. And I think um I said before is that lesson one, which is that word building. So cementing the sound spelling correspondences within the context of a word, reading it and writing it. The other one is our um, sound swap. So when you're doing a sound swap, what you're doing is if you write a a sound swap and you're swapping in and out those B's and those D's in the context of words, you're just giving more um, opportunities to read the word and um, see it in its correct position. And, I think there's also another. Uh, let's bring up Alison Perry. <laughs> she's she's just a wealth of knowledge. She's got so many gems of wisdom when it comes to sounds right, and I've got a couple of them still to come because she's such um such a font of knowledge. She's got a fantastic video um that can be referenced. It's got I don't know whether you've got the link, but um she does a talk about the shape of the mouth and um, B's and D's and things like that so it's also another reference that you can have a look at when you're thinking about B&D confusion Um, I think this kind of feeds in a a way so B&D it's a visual confusion but auditory discrimination is also one of the confusions and I think Annette from Facebook.
0: Yeah so the next question was going to be and I think we're coming up to an hour, so let's do a bit of a rapid fire on the next, the, our final few questions. So, Annette said um, that she has a student who um, gets confused between the sounds f and th. Um So, saying "free" for the the number three. So she'd love some strategies to kind of help
1: correct that. Okay, so I'd suggest, um, uh, and I'm sure she is already doing it. So I would suggest through gentle and consistent reflections of the correct sound, and then asking them to repeat it, will help the student um, fade those those errors. So I found that if you if the student said free instead of the free, I would say that. F- and I'd say your turn and then they would correct it by saying the same thing then I would make sure that when they're saying the sounds to write any words with those sounds in it that they go slowly and they are saying the right sound as they are writing it down so that's my my main strategy is making sure you're reflecting the correction getting them to reflect reflect the correction and then when they're saying the sounds to write the word that they are saying it correctly and if they're not asking them to do it again correctly because it's just gentle refle- um, gentle correction and being consistent with that over time it fades.
0: Excellent. Uh, next one, Wendy on Facebook said, any tips for how to approach uh, poor articulation? So saying, for example, puh instead of puh. And especially for middle school or older students who, you know, she wants to support their self-esteem. She doesn't want to sort of baby them in the way that, uh, she, she
1: corrects this. Yeah. So I think Wendy, it's a great question. And I think when, when you, you're absolutely correct, when you've got a middle schooler and they're, they're a little bit older, we definitely want to protect their self-esteem and not treat them, you know, treat them like you might treat a foundation student, which is the baby stuff. Um, is having open conversations with a student and explaining to them why precise pronunciation is so important um, and how it affects their reading fluency and their spelling accuracy. I think um, they're quite capable of having those grown-up conversations and understanding and then self-correcting and being being a part of that conversation rather than um, us correcting them. Giving them the why helps for older students.
0: Yeah, and uh, something we talked about when, with, in Donna's episode um, was that we've seen a few schools kind of do um, videos where each child says a different sound and they can kind of go back on, and reflect uh, on, on that correct pronunciation. And that's definitely something that I think you could do as well with older students, you know, sort of set them the task of going home and making a video of themselves saying the sounds precisely.
1: Yeah, taking ownership
0: yeah okay, next one Jocelyn on Facebook um, says when teaching words that end in e double l like bell and also e l in her New Zealand accent the the e sounds like an A as in Apple um, and some of her intervention students get frustrated and confused so how can she minimize that frustration? I think you'll have
1: lots of experience on this <laughs> <Mr>. cinder. <laughs> Kia ora, Jocelyn. I completely hear you. <laughs> um, so I am from Aotearoa. <laughs> and I, I think that when we're considering words that have a vowel with an L um, following it, like bell, tell, yell, um, that you take into consideration something that's called coarticulation. articulation Another conversation I had with Alison. Um, she's a speech pathologist as well as an experienced Sounds Right trainer. Coarticulation refers to the way that um, the realisation of speech sounds when they're influenced by their neighbouring sounds when, they're, when we're speaking. So we speak in connected speech, so there aren't um, segmented sounds. We do, we do that when we're spelling. Um, and the vowel sound like in bell, um, the you've got an open mouth for the air. Eh, and then your tongue has to very quickly go up to the top of the roof of your mouth which changes when you're speaking in a connected speech the vowel sound so it's the ill's fault um it's it's actually not our our accent um, but Alison also brought out that the even in the Australian accent if we think about the ass sound like in mat versus the word man because the n is a nasal sound it has an impact on the ass so it it's accent dependent and it's Um, the way that natural speech flows and the sound before it is having an impact on the following sound. Um, Yeah, so that's why I think it's really important that we emphasize our spelling voice when we're working with students, especially in that intervention setting. And I know as a Kiwi that I have had to actually work very, very hard. So I slow myself down um, and make a conscious effort because I know my mouth feels different um, from when I speak naturally in my Kiwi accent um, as when I'm teaching in my um, my, my group of Australian um, children. So I think my advice there would be, I understand, uh, but I have slowed down. I don't rush and I'm very precise when I'm, especially with those i those eh and eh, because for us, they get quite squished. Um, yeah, so slow down and um, word building probably will help you out there too. Yeah
0: and um, as we said we talked earlier about our visit to St George's, we watched a lesson from a Northern Irish teacher um, teaching in London and she kind of was adapting the way that she says certain words um, in Sounds Right lessons to match the accent of the students in London Um, and she did it really smoothly and um yeah she she was a brilliant example of that watching that
1: she was she was um and um yeah so if she can do it with a a northern irish accent um we can slow ourselves down okay i think this is the final question Shireen on Facebook says I'm
0: working with someone who is a Gestalt language processor and is ASD Would Sounds Right be suitable for this child? They're in need of literacy support
1: So without knowing the student um, it's quite difficult to know so um, I've worked successfully with a really wide range of students and not found a student that hasn't thrived with a Sounds Right approach so far Um, I think in your case with the Gestalt um, language processing, the framework of the lessons will provide um, a really great support for the student because they've got a lot of structure and routine. And what I've found, particularly with students with ASD, is that the consistency of the rules or the game, the lesson, that they can connect with that. The language is consistent, the routine is consistent, so they make stronger connections um, because it's predictable. Um, and when you're working with students that you're working within their comfort zone because it decreases the amount of anxiety that is around learning a new literacy, so I would absolutely be using it, but um, taking a very gentle, um, responsive approach to how you work with those children.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Well, that is the end of our questions. so thank you so much for Jacinda for this. Um, I feel so lucky to to have colleagues like you who are just such a wealth of information.
1: Um, so thank you so much oh, thank you it was a, it was an absolute pleasure to um, to dig into these questions and to do a little bit of research and talk to all the wonderful people that i I did get to talk to while I was researching and making sure I was giving as much um information as possible but it was wonderful thank you
0: yeah thank you and uh I hope for a a third appearance (laughs) of Jacinda on the podcast in the future I'm sure sounds great (laughs) all right thank you for listening see you next time